Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, I'm your host James Rogers and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. We have built up an amazing community of listeners over the last 10 months and it's been great hearing from so many of you about what episodes you've loved, episodes you've wanted to hear and your own family histories. So keep getting in contact with us and you can now do this via a dedicated email address which is warfare at historyhit.com. It is the 85th anniversary of the start of the Spanish Civil War this week and so so in this episode, we have Jane Rogoiska. Jane is the author of a new book on Gerda Taro, the legendary war photographer who fled Nazi Germany, met Robert Kappa in Paris, and then the two of them went off to document the human impact of the war. In fact, as Jane explains, Gerda gave her life to this cause as she became the first woman war photojournalist to die on the front line of conflict. So here is the brilliant Jane Rogoiska on the Spanish Civil War through the life and death of Gerda Tarrant. Hi Jane, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Hi James, I'm incredibly well, thank you. Enjoying some sunshine in London. Good to hear. Well, I'm in the United States and it is incredibly rainy and overcast, so I can only say I'm jealous of your good weather. Now, we are approaching, well, many anniversaries, but the anniversary of the Spanish Civil War at the moment. So we wanted to get you on to talk about perhaps one of the most famous couples, the most iconic couples in the history of photography, who changed war photography forever with shots like The Falling Soldier that highlighted the emotion and humanity, or indeed inhumanity, of war. But what's fascinating about their history is that they were not actually who they claimed to be. So tell us, Jane, who really were Robert Kappa and Gerda Taro? So it's a fascinating story that belongs to that really crucial and very turbulent period of the 1930s and the rise of fascism and its conflict with communism and left-wing politics. So Gerda Taro was born Gerda Pojarillo 
on the 1st of August 1910. She was brought up in Stuttgart in Germany, moved to Leipzig and became involved in her early 20s with anti-fascist and pro-communist politics, for which she was arrested by the Nazis. And after that rather frightening moment where she was held in prison for a couple of weeks and was only really let go because she happened to have a Polish passport due to the fact that her parents came from a region of Galicia, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire before the end of the First World War, which then became incorporated into newly independent Poland. So although she spoke not a word of Polish, this passport actually enabled her father to go to the Polish consulate, who then went to the police and said, you have a Polish citizen in your prison, please let her out. So she was very lucky. And one of the many confusions around Gerda Taro, of which there are many, many indeed, is she's often called Polish for that reason, but she's actually German, really. She's Jewish. And she, like many of her friends who were active in politics at that time, fled Germany in 1933 and went to Paris, where she started trying to survive as best she could. She had absolutely no history in photography at that time. And that was to come a little bit later when she met a very handsome, down at heel, slightly depressive, but terribly charming young man called Andre Friedman, who was Hungarian, also Jewish, had also fled fascism in his home country of Hungary. He had gone to Berlin, where he had started working as a photographer and photojournalist, started, you know, getting his foot on the bottom of the ladder. And then like so many people involved in that sphere of design, politics, photography, film, you name it, ended up in that flood of people arriving in Paris in the early 1930s. So they met in 1934. They became friends before they became lovers, but they both had other partners when they first met. They fell in love. And in 1936, they were living together and he was trying desperately still to make a living as a photographer in a very crowded, very snobbish French market. And so bear in mind that you've got the whole ranks of French photojournalists that he's competing with. But there's also, you know, half of Berlin's talent has arrived there as well. Many other people arriving from around Europe, super talented people, all trying to get the same pot of journalistic work. And he's very, very talented, but he was also rather chaotic, often very badly dressed, given two flights of tremendous kind of optimism and, you know, would spend his wages on champagne and oysters as soon as he had them and then would fall into the pits of despair when you know, he didn't get a job or, you know, he would pawn his camera. And so he was, he was a little bit chaotic and was often given to saying, oh, I'm going to go into the movie business instead. Maybe I can make my way there. And Gerda was, she had no work permit. So like many people, like many of the German Jews living in Paris at the time, she had no entitlement to work. She was scraping a living, doing various things, working as a secretary for a German academic and really, you know, finding it very hard. And Andre, through his contacts, managed to get her work in a photo agency. And that's where she started on the other side, looking at the sort of business side of photography. And she understood very quickly about business, the market, presentation, you know, she had a very modern understanding of the need to appear successful, to present yourself well. And she started sort of imbuing these ideas in Friedman, Andre Friedman. And nobody knows 
quite which of them came up with this idea. But I, you know, it's my belief that she was instrumental in a sort of ploy that they came up with together where just at the moment when he was finding it so hard to break into this busy market, they decided that they were going to invent a successful photographer. So, you know, if you can't be successful yourself and that you're both Jewish, you're both immigrants, you've got strong accent, you know, you've got complicated, immediately identifiably Jewish names. And, you know, there was plenty of anti-Semitism around in those days in France, as well as everywhere else in Europe. So Andre Friedman and Gerda Pohorile came up with this idea that they would invent a photographer who was American, super successful, never been to Europe before, which is why no one had ever heard of him. And they came up with a conveniently international sounding, but not directly attributable to any one country sort of name, Robert Kappa. And the idea was that Andre would take the pictures and she would sell them under her new pseudonym, Gerda Taro, and Andre Friedman would pretend to be the darkroom boy of Kappa. And so they started, they embarked on this ruse she smartened him up, made him dress smartly as well. And she went around the agencies selling his pictures at three times the rate that he would normally ask. And, you know, for a while, it actually was remarkably successful and it worked. But very quickly, one of the editors who knew Andre saw a picture, realised that Andre was the only photographer in the room at that time. It was a picture of Leon Trotsky, if I remember rightly, and sort of said, listen, who are you going to be? You know, you didn't really mind. You just said, are you Andre Friedman or are you Robert Kappa? And so, you know, I think Friedman decided that being Robert Kappa was slightly better for his bank balance than being Andre Friedman. And so that's kind of how the legend began. Needless to say, Kappa was a great raconteur and loved to tell an anecdote. And since Gerda died so young, we've only ever really had anecdotal versions of this but you know you're able to piece together bits of it and then it's a lot of fun supplying all the details with one's imagination or with what small amounts of documentation one has so that's how he became a photographer and he was a very good photographer so you know he was already making his way when the Spanish Civil War broke out but he also started teaching her photography and she didn't really have any professional credits to her name when the Spanish Civil War broke out. But when it did happen, and they both, like many young leftist people, decided that they wanted to go and support the Republican cause, he managed to get a commission from Vue magazine, which was one of the good photojournalist magazines in Paris, for them both to go. And the idea was initially that they would both file their photographs under the byline Kappa. And that was how it started. And that was how her career started. And that was the real beginning of his upward trajectory to becoming, you know, one of the world's greatest war photographers. It's a remarkable story. And you paint a fascinating picture. I can just think of Robert Kappa and Gerda Tarra as part of the amazing intellectual artistic scene in Paris at that time. And if you're making good money, which it sounds like at some point they started to, to develop that business, then it's an amazing place to be. Well, let me, yes, intervene. They never made good money. Ah. <laughs> you know, we've got to put this in context that, you know, they were both pretty much on the breadline and, you know, but it allowed them to survive. Well, this actually helps me with my next question I wanted to ask you, because it's all well and good being a sympathetic, left-wing aligned, young, passionate 
ideological intellectual artist in Paris at that time, but it takes quite a jump to actually go into a war zone. There's many people that will talk about it or say, I'm going there, but will never actually do it. Who was it out of the two of them who was actually pushing to go and document the Spanish Civil War on behalf of the Republican cause? I think it was both of them. And I think it was less unusual that you think, but also maybe to give you a bit of context, we're at the first part of the 20th century. So World War I, cameras had not developed in any sophisticated enough way to make it possible for news reporters to carry them to the front line. So prior to the invention of the Leica, the small Leica that revolutionized the way that people could take photographs, they were carrying much bulkier cameras. So it really wasn't possible to be embedded in the way that you would think of it now. And so although we have footage from World War One, it was really the Spanish Civil War was the first conflict to be covered fully by the visual press. So that's one thing. So it was the small 35 mil cameras that allowed journalists to go and do that. Secondly, Capra and Taro are not artists, they're journalists. And they're both very politically motivated. And again, it's very difficult for us in the context of where we are in the 21st century to even imagine that you would feel so strongly about a political cause that you would go off, as so many people did from Britain and from around Europe, not just to record it, but to fight for it, as many you know, very idealistic, strongly believing left-wing young people did. And... Part of that came from the fact that they believed that they were at the vanguard, which they were, of the fight against fascism. And they had identified fascism as you know, personified by Hitler, but also by Franco, as the biggest danger to the democratically elected government of Spain, but also to Western society. And obviously the rest of Western politicians were much slower to come to terms with the fact of the threat from fascism because at that time they were more aligned with the interests of the ruling classes, the landowners, the church, the aristocrats who represented the people behind Franco. And they were so anti-communism and so fearful of communism that that overwhelmed any idea to try and support a democratically elected government. So that, you know, there's a lot of quite complex politics behind the Western government's inertia in the face of the Spanish Civil War, but also behind the anger and passion of a lot of young people who went off to fight for it. And for many journalists, don't forget, they had skin in the game. Gerda Taro, she's German and she's Jewish. And you have to remember, Franco, you know, the Republican government did not get any support from anyone except the Soviet Union, because our governments took a deliberate non-interventionist policy, the French and the British did and they sat on their hands, whereas Franco received direct support from both Mussolini and Hitler. And for example, the famous bombing of the Basque town of Guernica, the bombers that were responsible for that first and most devastating civilian bombing raid were the German planes. So, you know, we often speak about the Spanish Civil War as a rehearsal for World War II, and in many ways it was. So for Taro and for Kappa, as both people who had suffered directly at the hands of right-wing governments in their own countries, there was a very real reason to go. But also, they were young. They were in their early 20s. This was a chance to make their name. It was a chance to go and report. And of course, 
they don't have the backstory that we have of the danger of going to report from a war. We now know that many, many reporters have died reporting for the front line. Cameramen, photographers, journalists, it's a very dangerous thing to do. But off they went, filled with hope and excitement, certainly at the beginning. They are young They are ambitious, but the political cause, as you say, is intertwined into their mind, body and soul, and in fact, their very survival, right? So when they end up in the midst of the Spanish Civil War, what story is it that they want to tell, Jane? Well, that's a very interesting question, because initially, of course, they are reporting for, you know, generally left-leaning publications. And what, of course, they want to show, and these in the early part in August 1936, when they went out, there had been a lot of very anti-Republican publicity. There were lots of photographs showing atrocities committed by anarchists and by the Republicans, and they were desperate to show the other side. And what they wanted to show were Republican victories, of course. That's where they were sent to do go off and take lots of wonderful photographs of Republicans beating back Franco's army. Unfortunately, what happened when they arrived was they spent most of the first couple of months chasing around trying to find some action because everywhere they went, I mean, it was slightly absurd. They'd arrive somewhere and there'd be a group of kind of slightly tired and bored looking brigaders doing nothing, sitting in the sunshine and twiddling their thumbs. There wasn't a lot going on and they travelled around the Aragon front, you know, in search of excitement and found very little. And the most iconic picture that Capra is best known for, The Falling Soldier, was taken on the 5th of September 1936 at a place called Cerro Muriano. And actually that was a direct moment where out of no action at all, there suddenly came this little moment, this flurry of action, and they were taken by surprise, the soldiers that they were with, and there was a big sort of scuttling for safety. I don't want to talk about it here because it's a complex subject, but there is a photograph taken by Gerda Tarot on the same day and in the same place that shows a sort of very similar setup and possibly even the same soldier, I don't know, but... They were undoubtedly there, I believe that completely, because some people have tried to prove that Kappa wasn't there, that it was a fake picture. I don't believe it is. And we have documentary evidence that suggests it is not. But just to illustrate the fact that a civil war doesn't have a front line in the same way that World War I had trenches. It didn't work like that. And there were many, many cases of soldiers or and civilians wandering into the other zone without realising, you know, you could go into one village and pop out the other side and discover you were in the wrong zone. So it's very easy to do. And there was a lot of confusion. And of course, it was very hard to guard bits of the front. So there were long parts of it where nothing went on for months on end. So George Orwell, in his homage to Catalonia, that's another quite famous example of someone who sat around doing nothing for quite a long time, got rather disillusioned. So quite a lot of these people who went out hoping for action initially at least found themselves dissatisfied. But action soon came along and they both started developing as photographers in quite different ways. And in the early part of the year that Gerda Taro was there, she came back to Paris for a while and he remained in Madrid. I think because they couldn't get the commissions or for whatever reason it was, he was the one who was chosen to remain behind. And that was during this really crucial period of the siege of Madrid. And this is where he took some of the photographs that really established his reputation as a war photographer. 
when she came back out to join him, and she was still at this time taking pictures on a Rolleiflex camera, which is a square format camera, which is not so good for that kind of front line. It's much better for portraiture. Around about February 1937, she acquired a 35mm camera. Possibly he gave her his old Leica and he acquired a contacts at that point. And from that point on, they were both taking pictures in the same format. And this is where it becomes incredibly difficult to differentiate between their pictures, because the question of a byline was very vague in those days. You know, no one was terribly fussed. And, you know, you're a newspaper reporter. It's not about being precious. So some of them were filed under Kappa. Some of them were filed under Kappa and Tarot. Later in the year, her photograph, she got her own byline Tarot. This becomes important later in terms of the legacy, but they both built up their reputations and they started working in separate areas. So he went off, for example, to cover the action in Bilbao, whereas she went to Valencia, which was being very badly bombed. And she took some incredible pictures of the morgue there of people waiting to discover whether their relatives had been killed. She never shied away from taking pictures of the dead. She was very forthright and very brave in that respect. I am fascinated by this focus that you bring us to on technology because I've never really thought about how that personalization of the camera, the fact that you don't have to have a prolonged setup of a cumbersome and lumbering machine that allows for stage photography can really just change the whole way in which we see conflict. When you look at the photos of the First World War, so many of them are, of course, staged. They're pictures of groups of lads sitting in the trenches with a quite disturbing smile on their face. Whereas when it comes to Kappa and Taro, it brings the human back into the war. And as you say, this is a civil war and civil wars are different to wars which have firm, defined, trench-lined front lines. This is a war in which civilians will get caught in the crossfire and it is far more of a complex situation. Was this at the forefront of their mind when Taro was photographing the images of the bodies or when Kappa was taking those pictures of the soldiers? Did they know that they were drawing out the humanity of war and showing what happens to civilians in these conflicts? Something which, of course, is going to be echoed in the next wars to come and, in fact, is echoed in warfare all the way through to today, perhaps more now than ever. I think it was definitely at the forefront of their minds, and you only have to look at their photographs to understand that. Kappa had this famous saying of, if your pictures aren't good enough, you're not close enough. And that came from this idea that, you know, you had to be right in there with the action to understand it. And they both had a very particular policy of trying to be in the front line with the men. And so whether they would cover civilian things as well. So, for example, the bombing of Bilbao, Capo had some shocking but very powerful pictures of civilians fleeing bombs. And I think it's a very good point that you make that this war is a first in so many ways. So it's the first war to be properly documented through photography. It's also the first war, I think, where civilians are affected to such a great extent, because this is also the first war of real aerial bombardment of civilian targets. And that, of course, comes partially from the German involvement of the Condor Legion, amongst others, who were essentially rehearsing for World War II. So Taro and Kappa had a reputation amongst the soldiers for being with them. 
So a lot of journalists, so the traditional thing for journalists would that they'd be at a safe distance, so hidden behind a, <laughs> a hillock, peering over the top, trying to make their report. And, you know, some of the more seasoned journalists were very brave and some of the less seasoned ones wrote it all from a very safe distance. And as photographers went, I think Catherine Tarot in particular really benefited from the friendships that they made amongst the people. And don't forget that there were international brigades there as well as the Spanish Republican forces. And in the international brigades, there were German brigades, there were Hungarians. They all knew each other. They all met each other. They all went to the bars in the evenings. And there was a real comradeship there. But as the war progresses, and I suppose it's important to point out, we'll come to this, is, you know, Taro's career is very short. It's not quite a year. And during that time, she went from a novice to really quite a cult figure in Spain amongst the Republican community, but also as a journalist. She was quite an important figure, a sort of rising star before she was killed. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, you mentioned the fact that Taro has such a short career. She does, in fact, become the first female photojournalist to die on the front line of battle. Can you take us through what happened in that tragic incident? So in July 1937, Kappa had gone back to Paris, in fact, and he was trying to get them a commission to go to China, where a new conflict had broken out and which they were very keen to cover. And in fact, he did get them a commission which, and they were going to go out there together. So one of the things about the trajectory of Catherine Tarot's career through this year when she was in Spain is Kappa, although he was very well known for getting close to the action, also had a very strong sense of keeping his distance emotionally. And he had a strong sense of self-preservation. He was kind of like a cat. Someone described him once as a cat. He could be there. You wouldn't see him. You wouldn't notice him. But he was also light on his feet and would pull back when he needed to. And he wasn't as politically committed as Gerda Taro, possibly because he hadn't had the same direct experience of Nazi involvement in his early career, but it wasn't in his character to align himself with any kind of political movement. And I think that helped him to deal with what was going on in Spain. Whereas I think for her, she very closely identified with the suffering of the Spanish people. And I think that led her to perhaps become almost too engaged and to see it as her conflict, that she was part of the fight rather than a reporter reporting on it. And any photojournalist will be able to say that this is a very important line. And for the sake of your own sanity, you can't cross it. And she was starting to make a real name for herself. And in July, there was a very important Republican battle going on on the outskirts of Madrid, the Battle of Brunete. And it was a real first attempt to get a major Republican victory. And at the beginning, it looked like it was going really, really well. And she managed to get there, to be there before anyone else did. She got the scoop. She got the first pictures from there. She knew the people in charge and she was getting some really great pictures and they were going right back to Paris and they were being featured on the front pages. And towards the end of July, She was due to go back to Paris the next day and she decided to go for one last day to the front. And she took a young Canadian with her called Ted Allen, who'd never been to the front before and he was very keen to go with her. And he was a little bit in love with her and had been nagging her to say, can can you take me to the front? And on that day, she took him to the front with her and it was just all hell broke loose on that day. It was a really, really awful day of conflict. And General Walto, who was one of her connections there, who was actually a Polish general, told her, he normally welcomed her very warmly, but he said, you need to leave now. And she didn't. And she stayed there taking these pictures, you know, with her camera up above her head and cowering in this foxhole. And at a certain moment, she'd got what she needed and they were going to go back to Madrid and celebrate. And she and Ted Allen left the front line and jumped onto the side runner of a passing car. In fact, it was General Walter's car, but he wasn't in it, with a couple of injured soldiers in it. And as they were driving back on the road towards Madrid, an out-of-control Republican tank, so one of their own tanks, which had been strafed by a plane, crashed into the car, sent them both flying, 
and he broke his leg and she was not a bit too fun but she was squashed so her innards her guts were completely squashed she was still alive when they took her to the hospital outside madrid and was uh, conscious enough to say a few words many of which again get sort of reported in various faintly fictional forms and died early in the morning of the 26th of July 1937 so she was just a few days short of her 27th birthday. After her death a paper that she was reporting for which was a communist backed French newspaper called Ce Soir edited by the well-known writer Louis Aragon because she'd been a sort of star report of them, decided that this sort of iconic death of this beautiful, she's a very beautiful young woman on the front line, merited a lot of publicity. And it, again, there's something strikingly modern about the way that they sort of cultivated this almost Princess Diana-like fever pitch of building up to the funeral, the reports that they had, all these telegrams that they supposedly received from young girls and soldiers and saying what an amazing heroine she was. She was Joan of Arc, you know, and they had this enormous funeral at which 10,000 people attended in Paris with poor Kappa, who was completely devastated, trailing behind the coffin. You know, and for a while she was frontline news. And then, of course, as happens with news, it moves on. Kappa went to China, but he also went back later to Spain. And as we know, he later really cemented his reputation in his photography during the Second World War. Whereas Taro, for so many reasons, was forgotten for a very long time. And her legacy really only started being revisited in the 1980s and then really properly in the 2000s. Go into that in a second. I want to know a little bit more about how this affected Kappa, Ted. Did it really affect the troops that were there around her as well? I know she becomes a kind of martyr to the left, but in what way does it impact those around her, both emotionally but also creatively as well? Well, the young man who accompanied her on that day, Ted Allen, was the last person to be with her during that day. He was a rather strange character, and I've read things subsequently which have sort of justified my sense that he's a little bit of a fantasist. But he also wrote a novel about his experience during the Spanish Civil War, which included a very thinly disguised version of sort of himself as Kappa and a very thinly disguised version of her. And it's a kind of love story in which she loves him. He also describes necking with Martha Gellhorn in a taxi seconds after meeting her. So he's not a very reliable witness, I don't think. And many of the sort of more mythical versions of Tarot's last day come not just from his first-hand account, but then from Sassoir's version of his account. So there's all these kind of layers of myth-making that go on in the immediate aftermath, where her last words are repeated and then exaggerated and then they grow. So that's on one side. And then he fades from the story. He's a very minor player in the story. Tarot's death affected Kappa in a very profound way, I think because it is uh, very reasonable to be able to argue that she was the real love of his life, at least the first love of his life. She was the only woman that he ever asked to marry him. She was also... They were from the same background. You know, they both met each other as these impoverished Jewish refugees in Paris. She knew Andre Friedman the way that he knew Gerda Pajarillo. And they always said that after her death, it was as if a kind of veil came down over him. And there was a kind of period of 
darkness, which he almost didn't emerge from. He drank a lot. He took to his bed and for three days and nights, he cried his eyes out in his room and he refused any food or drink, which his Japanese friend, photographer Seiji Inui, would bring to him. And he was tortured by feelings of guilt for having taken Gerda to Spain and for having introduced her to this profession, which would take her life. And when he emerged, many of his friends described him as being just that bit harder, a little bit more hidden. And he basically was Kappa. You know, he was the gambling, charming, womanizing, risk taking. You know, he has become the archetype of a certain kind of foreign correspondent, hasn't he, really? You know, and he had many love affairs, including with Ingrid Bergman. You know, he had a very colorful love life and he himself died you know, age 40, stepping on a landmine reporting from the war in Indochina. But there was a real darkness at the heart of his experience because of Gerda's loss. And I think he felt responsible for it. And this refers back to that sense that I mentioned earlier of her being too engaged and him being able to step back. And I think he felt that he could protect her, whether he could have or not, I don't know. But the fact that he physically wasn't there really played on him. And, you know, I think caused him a great deal of trauma. And Pierre Gassman, who was a photographer and printer and a very close friend of Kappa's, recalled that years later when Kappa spoke about his guilt, it was the only time when he was truly serious. He was well known as a very kind of jokey figure. I left her in danger, he said. She would never have died if I'd been there. As long as she was with me, she was safe. As long as I was there, she'd do what I did. I would never have let her stand on the running board. That was a reckless thing to do. I would never have allowed it. It sounds like Robert Kappa became his alter ego almost, a shield against the person that he once was and the person who knew Gerda Taro. I think that's a very fair way of putting it. And in fact, that is kind of how I end my book, really, that actually, you know, Andre Friedman died with Gerda Taro. And afterwards, it was Robert Kappa who was in the Ascendant and who remained the persona that Andre Friedman felt he had to embrace in order to live with that darkness. And it was fascinating that he really never spoke about it so rarely. There's even a recording of him and he just glosses over it. It's extraordinary. He He hardly ever mentions her again. Well, she certainly is a remarkable figure and it is surprising to hear that she was lost from history for decades. So tell us, why does she come back into history in the 1980s, but again, well, much more recently? Well, it's a very interesting phenomenon of how certain figures become forgotten and then rediscovered. And in the case of the Spanish Civil War, you know, obviously the Spanish Civil War ended in April 1939. Guess what happened a few months later? You know, it was hugely overshadowed by World War II. And there was also, because of this association with the left, during the Cold War, the Spanish Civil War was not a particularly interesting subject for the West. So it was not researched, it was not lauded or investigated or researched in quite the way that it is now. So that's part of the reason why many figures, not just Gerda Tarot, but photographers and writers became rather neglected during that period. But for Tarot in particular, there was a kind of double whammy of the fact that she was sort of subsumed into the legend of Robert Kappa. And because Kappa himself died at the age of 40, his legacy of photographs, which by that time he'd founded the Magnum Agency and all of those photographs from the Spanish Civil War were sort of all mixed up there. 
There was no one to guard her legacy. Her family were killed in the Holocaust. She had no champions. He had a brother, Cornell, who founded this International Center of Photography in New York, which was there to preserve the legacy of Kappa. And it wasn't till the late 1980s when Kappa's biographer, Richard Whelan, started looking at things a little bit differently, that he realized that Gerda Tarra was a little bit more than just Kappa's girlfriend. And then later in the 2000s, in 2007, there was one of those finds that people dream about where they found what's called the Mexican suitcase. Now, it's not a suitcase, it's three boxes, but it's called the Mexican suitcase because Kappa had put a load of negatives, mainly from the Spanish Civil War, in a suitcase at the beginning of World War II when he was fleeing Paris. And he gave them to a friend who bicycled them across the countryside and who gave them to the Mexican consular. They ended up in Mexico in an attic forgotten until a filmmaker actually inherited them and contacted the International Centre of Photography and said, I think I've got something here that may be of interest to you. And of course, they were so used to people kind of turning up with various, you know, yeah, 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 okay. But in this case, it turned out to be an extraordinary treasure trove of over 4,000 negatives, which were most of Tarot's pictures from the Spanish Civil War a large body of Kappa's pictures from the Spanish Civil War, and a significant body by a fellow photographer called Shim, David Seymour, another very, very prominent photographer. And what those negatives allowed researchers at the ICP, the International Centre of Photography, to do was to start making a much closer connection about who took which picture when. And it allowed this process of attribution to happen much more exactly. And so they were much better able to identify Tarot's pictures. And obviously many of them had been identified as being by Kappa. And that's a very understandable mistake. So again, it's important to say these are journalistic pictures. You know, whatever their great talents, these aren't art pictures. So you can't actually always point at a picture and go, I can see that's by Tarot. I can see that's by Kappa. Quite a lot of the time, it could be by either of them. But nevertheless, you know, there are certain identifiable things that they do or ways that they take pictures. But the scholars have been able to really take all of that 35 millimeter footage and make a much clearer picture of who Tarot was and what her photographic legacy is. And obviously it's a much more substantial legacy than people previously thought. It's a short one. You know, she will never reach the stature of Kappa. She couldn't, she didn't have the time. But it's significant for so many reasons, and I think it's important that we remember her for that reason. It's amazing to hear that her legacy does live on and will live on. Where can people read more about this fascinating history? Well, they can read it in my own book, which is called Gerda Tarot, Inventing Robert Kappa, which also includes a substantial number of pictures by both of them. There are also publications by the International Centre of Photography, including a massive two-volume publication called The Mexican Suitcase, which has a lot of the contact prints and lots of very interesting essays. So there is now plenty that people can read about it. That's amazing. Well, that's some of my summer reading taken care of. But I've got one final question to ask you, Jane. We spoke about her final words. Is it true that she said, did they take care of my camera? So when Gerda was taken to the hospital at El Goloso, which was an English hospital at El Escorial, she was very badly injured, but she was still alive and conscious. 
She was operated on by a New Zealand doctor who gave her a blood transfusion. And there was an American nurse who took care of her. And she later recalled the fact that Gerda asked repeatedly if her cameras were safe. And this is very illustrative of what happened with the sort of myth-making. So later on, that became reported in the newspapers as soir in a rather sort of retelling the story of her final hours became more dramatic. So a journalist called Ribacourt gave the first account of her death. And then this was followed up by Ted Allen's doubtlessly editorially improved first-hand account. I'm not saying he improved it, but the editors may have done so. Where Sassoir, when they published a tribute to Tarot, gave her some final moments which were worthy of a Hollywood movie. I'm quoting here. On her hospital bed a few hours before her death, she had asked, gasping for breath, is my camera all right? Broken, she was told. Her reply was stoical. C'est la guerre. That's war. So <laughs> there are even claims that her camera has been found somewhere, you know, on the battlefields of Brunete. But we don't have a direct quote from her last moments. What we do have, and this is another fascinating thing that surfaced in 2018, is a photograph, which we think is of Gerda Taro on her deathbed, actually already dead. And this surfaced on Twitter a couple of years ago from a Hungarian doctor who'd been there. And uh, myself and my colleague, Richard Baxel, were sort of tasked with trying to work out if it was genuine or not. And we came to the conclusion that it probably was a genuine picture of Gerda Taro. You, you can find that online as well. Well, Jane, it sounds like this history is constantly evolving. There's new things coming up. So you're going to have to come back on the Warfare podcast to update us with this history as we go forward. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's my great pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.